The scripture is Luke 6, 1 through 11. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain field, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hand. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all he said to him, uh, said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But those were, but they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, family of God. It's been a joy already to feel the presence of the Lord with us this morning. Aren't you glad that God is with us? One of the things that happens to us sometimes is as we begin to experience the presence of God, we also become sensitive to our own spiritual weakness and our own sin. And sometimes we don't like the way that that feels. Anybody like feeling weak? We don't like it, but that awareness of our weakness and our sin is not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing because it reminds us how much we need God's grace. And uh, I want to pause to pray before we say anything else and just encourage you, whatever you've been going through, whatever choices you've made, good choices, bad choices, whatever sins you're battling right now, your father in heaven is not an angry, critical father. He's a loving and gracious father who is happy to meet with you this morning. And I want to just invite you to bow your head with me as we get ready to study God's word. And let's just take a second to confess our need for God in prayer, silently where we are. If there's any sins that the Lord's brought to your mind that you need to confess to him, just to take a moment to do that and to be assured that he forgives you, he loves you, and he wants to speak to you this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a gracious and loving and patient Father. And Lord, we, we come to you as your children, loving you and trusting you, but also confessing our weakness and our need. Would you forgive our sins? 
Lord, would you give us minds that are understanding and attentive as we study your word this morning? Would you give us hearts that are receptive and fully engaged with what you want to say to us? Would you help me, Lord, as I speak to speak every word that you want to share and none that you don't? And just give us all grace to trust Jesus and to know him more when we leave here this morning. It is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, today we get to talk about rest. That's our theme. And some of us struggle with rest. Some of us struggle to find time to rest. Some of us, even when we have time to rest, just struggle to do it. We don't know quite what to do. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been working really hard and you get to a weekend and you're stressed out because you only have a few hours on the weekend to rest? You don't know what to do with it. Okay, a few people will laugh if you don't know what I'm talking about, but a few of you know. And yet, despite the fact that some of the time we struggle to rest, I think we all know that rest is a good thing. And we can make this point by just imagining this scenario. Imagine that you walk into work tomorrow, wherever you work. Kids in the room, you can imagine school instead, okay? And when you you walk into the office, imagine that there's a surprise meeting and the big boss comes into the surprise meeting. And he says, hey, I really appreciate all of you. I appreciate all of the hard work that you've been doing. And because I really care about you, I just want to say for the next two weeks, we're all going to take the next two weeks off of work. Just rest. I'm going to pay you. This is PTO paid time off. Plus, you get a little extra bonus to make sure you have the resources that you need to rest. Kids, just imagine the principal says the same thing. Here's a little spending cash for you for your two weeks off. If you want to see your friends, you can still come here. We'll feed you and just let you play all day. Now, after that announcement, is anybody groaning? No. Is the mood sad or happy? It's happy, right? There is much rejoicing. Even if you like school, even if you like your job, you understand that rest is a good thing. And in the Bible, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we read the story of God creating the heavens and the earth. God does good, creative work to make everything that exists and then to form it into a peaceable, ordered creation in which human life can thrive. And then it says he rested. And what's interesting, if you go read that account, God said that everything he made is good. Everybody say it is good. But there's only one thing at this point that he calls holy. And that thing is the Sabbath rest. For Christians, we understand that in a mysterious way, rest is not only good, but there's something holy. There's something sacred about it. And when the children of Israel were set free from their slavery and God established a covenant of love with them through his servant Moses, he gave them. The Sabbath, it was a gift of a day of rest every week. It was a good gift. But what's happening in our text today is this. Jesus is going around teaching people and healing sick people and proclaiming the kingdom of God. He's doing a lot of good things and he's doing some of those good things on the Sabbath day, which is a day of rest. Sabbath is going to be our key word for today. So everybody say Sabbath. And somehow the Pharisees, this group of religious leaders that we've been learning about for the last couple of weeks, 
have found a way to take the good gift of rest and to make it a heavy burden. They've taken a gift of rest and made something miserable out of it. And the Pharisees in this text are getting angrier and angrier at Jesus because they don't like what Jesus is doing on the Sabbath day. If you want to just look, look with me at verse two, I'm going to show you how their anger at Jesus escalates. And verse two says some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So they're seeing Jesus and his disciples act a certain way, and they're now reacting by criticizing him. You're doing stuff on the Sabbath that we don't think you should be doing. And then in verse 7, it's escalated. They're, just, they're not just reacting. Now they're watching ahead of time, trying to catch Jesus doing something they don't approve of on the Sabbath. So that they can accuse him and get him into trouble with the authorities. Verse 7 says, And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So they might find a reason to accuse him. And then when he does heal on the Sabbath and he refutes their teaching, they get very angry. Verse 11 says this, but they were filled with fury. That's that's strong words. They were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. This issue of Sabbath rest and how to think about God's gift of Sabbath rest becomes an issue that creates intensified conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. As a matter of fact, if you go and study Mark chapter 2, which tells this same story, one of the things that Mark says is that when he sees the lack of compassion of the Pharisees who don't want him to heal on the Sabbath, it says that Jesus is angry with them and grieved because of the hardness of their hearts. And Mark says that this is the moment when the Pharisees begin plotting to destroy Jesus. They're actually going to try to murder him. Because they're so angry about how he treats the Sabbath. Now, this may be hard for us to wrap our minds around. Why are they so angry about this? But we need to remember a few of the basic ideas about the Pharisees that we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. This is a large religious movement of people. They're not priests. This is lay men who are deeply devoted to God. They're deeply devoted to studying the scriptures and to living religiously disciplined lives. But their basic worldview is that God is very holy and just and he's punished his people for their sin. And if the people would just get their act right to follow all of the rules, then God would be willing to rescue them and to send the Messiah. If people would keep the Torah, if people would be careful to follow all the rules, then God would be willing to send the Savior and rescue them. You see, there's something That sounds almost close to right, but is deeply wrong going on there. They understand that God is holy and just, but they do not understand the love and the mercy and the grace and the compassion of God. And so they've made out of religion, not something that's about responding with faith and love to a God who took the initiative to love us. But they've made a system for trying to manipulate God to be willing to help them. And the Sabbath is part of their system. We've got to keep all the Sabbath rules just right. And then God will be willing to help us. And if we break the rules, then God's not going to be willing and we're going to continue in our sorry state. And because their concept of God is very angry and critical and 
God, it should not be surprising that they're also very angry and harsh and critical with other people, including now with Jesus. Specifically, they get mad at him for doing two things on the Sabbath. In verses 1 through 5, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a field. The disciples are very hungry. They grab some kernels of grain, rub them together in their hands and eat them. This may sound like a very small thing to you, but to the Pharisees, picking grain and eating it is work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. So they criticize Jesus for this. And then the second one, of course, is that while Jesus is teaching God's people, there's a man with a withered hand. And understand, not only is that something that would have caused physical inconvenience and perhaps social shame, But this very likely would have hindered this man's ability to work, to provide for himself and a family if he has one. So this is really could be a matter of life and death. Certainly it's a matter of flourishing for this man. And they know that Jesus is going to want to heal this man. And that's what makes them so mad, because in their mind, healing a sick person on the Sabbath is work. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest. Now, we could psychoanalyze the Pharisees for a while. And if we did, I don't think, if we did it honestly, I don't think we'd be feeling super superior. I think we'd start wanting to examine ourselves. Because as we've been saying for the last two weeks, church family, is there a tendency for us to doubt God's love for us? Is there a tendency for us to... Take good spiritual practices he's given us and imagine that if we just do it all right, then he'll start caring about us. I think that tendency is in many of our hearts. When in truth, God already loved us. He already had grace towards us. And all of our spiritual activity is just a response of trust to our loving father. It would be helpful, perhaps, to continue analyzing the Pharisees. But I don't want to do that because I'd rather give our attention to Jesus today. Wouldn't you? Everybody say it's all about Jesus. The Pharisees' criticisms create an opportunity for Jesus to do two profound things today in our text. First, Jesus teaches us the true meaning of the Sabbath. In this text, Jesus is teaching us the true meaning of the Sabbath. If you want to know about the Sabbath, what is about, what is God's gift of rest, this is a good text because it turns out that the Pharisees have actually completely understood the law of Moses on which they are hanging all their hopes. They don't get it. They don't understand it. So Jesus is going to teach us the true meaning of the Sabbath. But the second thing he's going to do is even more powerful and profound because Jesus is going to take this opportunity to show his glory in a new way, which should both challenge and comfort us. When we leave here today, my prayer is that all of our hearts will be saying Jesus is a gracious Lord and an awesome Savior. Let's look at these two things Jesus does. First, Jesus shows the true meaning of the Sabbath and explains that the Pharisees misunderstood the law of Moses and and what God was saying about the Sabbath in the first place. Let's look again on how Jesus responds to their first criticism. Okay, so he and his disciples are walking through the fields. They pick the grain, they eat it. The Pharisees criticize him. How does he respond? Verse three says this. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, 
which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. First, let's meditate on the opening words of Jesus' response right there. Did you notice the very first thing he said? Have you not read? Have you not read? And he's, of course, talking about the scriptures. He quotes a Samuel from, uh, I mean, a, a, a story from 1 Samuel chapter 21 in the Bible. Have you not read? He points them back to the Bible. Church family, when we get confused about who God is, it's because we're making up our own ideas about who God is and we always get it wrong. And we need to go back to the source where God has revealed himself. And where is that? The Bible. That's right. Everybody say back to the Bible. But here's the thing. The Pharisees that are criticizing Jesus, they're actually Bible experts. They probably had huge portions of Scripture committed to memory. But Jesus repeatedly points out that despite all this Scripture that they put in their heads, they actually have a very shallow understanding of the Bible. Their problem is not that they're too biblical. Their problem is that they're not biblical enough. And Jesus repeatedly teaches That to be spiritually mature, it's not enough just to skim the surface of the scriptures and get some rules that we can follow for life that we think are going to make us successful. Instead, we need to learn to press deeply into God's word and let it come to dwell deeply within us. And what we're going to find is that over and over and over again, the Bible is revealing to us a holy and loving God. The Bible is pointing us towards the person of Jesus and the Bible is teaching us to live by faith in God's love and to love the Lord and to love people. And the Pharisees are missing all of that. So the important spiritual lesson here, church family, is to become spiritually mature is not enough to be very familiar with the surface of the scriptures. We want to become a deeply biblical people that know the depths of God's revelation to us. But then we need to move on and Think about what Jesus is actually saying as he refers to this story. Now, you can go read it this week. It's from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And it's a story about David. At this point in David's life, David has already been anointed as the true king of Israel. And yet he has not yet been enthroned as the king. So he is the anointed king of Israel. But there's another guy, King Saul, who is still the ruler of Israel. And David is actually perfectly content to serve King Saul until his time comes. But King Saul is not content with that. He's very jealous. So Saul is trying to kill David. David is on the run. He's a fugitive. He's fleeing. And he has with him a band of men who are fleeing with him, fleeing for their lives. And in this story, David and his band of followers are very, very hungry. And they come to a house of worship and there's a priest there. And David, the anointed king, asks Do you have some food so that I can feed and nurture the lives of these men who are with me? And the priest says, well, I don't have any food except I have this bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence was used in rituals of worship that God gave his people. And God had revealed in the law of Moses that this bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. So there's a tricky situation here. And in this situation, you got to figure out what do you do? And what the story says is there's a whole conversation in which David talks about, well, the men are ritually pure. They're not ritually unclean. And the priest makes a difficult decision about what he thinks God wants him to do. It's true that technically, according to the law, this bread of the presence is only supposed to be eaten by priests. 
But he makes a decision that preserving the life of the Lord's anointed and of his followers is more important. That also is in the law. And that that is the weightier matter of the law. And so he chooses to give this bread uh, to these people and they eat it. And the text suggests and Jesus here affirms that he made the right choice. He did the right thing there. Why? He understood the weightier matter of the law. That we can make a connection here with something very important that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. If you've got your Bible, you might put your finger in Luke 6. Don't lose your place, but then go over to Matthew chapter 23. And here's another moment where Jesus is having an encounter with these scribes and Pharisees. And he says to them, Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. What is Jesus doing right here? Here's what he's saying. Many Jewish teachers at the time, as they studied the scriptures, they studied the law of Moses and they tried to understand it and apply to their life. They found that there's many situations that the law does not speak to directly. And there's also many complicated situations in which it seems like three or four or five different commandments might apply in contradictory ways. Life can be complex and confusing. Anybody ever go through life and you're trying to obey God, but you hit a situation and you just don't know what you're supposed to do? Okay, that was unconvincing. Are y'all's lives that much less complicated than mine? Let me try that again. Anybody ever hit a situation you just don't know what to do? Okay, there you are. You're still awake. It's all that talk about rest, I guess. You were just settling in. Um, yeah, that happens. And when, when people reason, when the, when the teachers reasoned like this, they were saying, in those situations we recognize God's law was never an exhaustive list of commandments that tell us exactly what to do in every situation. God's law was there to teach us wisdom. And to become people of wisdom, we need the discernment to know what are the weightier matters in the law and what are the lighter matters in the law. It's about priorities. What's most important to God and what's less important? God himself says this throughout the prophets. He says mercy is more important than sacrifice. He says things like that all the time. And he's very clear. God has given them ritual commandments to follow as part of their worship. But he says the moral commandments to honor the Lord by loving human beings are weightier. They're more important. So what Jesus just said in Matthew 23, 23, I, I hope you all catch this. This should make a lot of pastors like me think twice because he's saying right here, if you emphasize a lot tithing, but you do not teach, treat vulnerable people with mercy and justice, you're a hypocrite. And you're missing the heart of God. There's weightier matters of the law. The same thing is going on in this story. And probably if he was around today, the many people would have done like the Pharisees and say, uh, Jesus, isn't this just situational ethics? Aren't you a postmodern moral relativist? And he is not a postmodern moral relativist, but all ethics is situational and requires wisdom. And to, know, to use wisdom, you need to know what's most important for God. Jesus says justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That's the way to your matters of the law. And he says there's two great commandments above all the others. You know what they are. What's number one, church? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What's, what's the second one? Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus is causing the Pharisees and scribes to think more deeply. 
and reason. And the logic here is spelled out even more clearly in verse 9. Let your eyes drop down to verse 9. Go back to Luke 6. Luke 6, verse 9. This is when he's about to heal the man who they don't want him to heal because it's the Sabbath. And he says, I ask you, is it lawful? That word keeps coming up. Did you notice? Everybody say lawful. That's the third time we've seen it in our text. The word lawful is saying, basically just asking the question, what does God really want from us? What does God really want from us? How does he want us to live? And Jesus asked a rhetorical question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? The answer is supposed to be obvious. What is it, church? Do good. That's right. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to save life or to destroy it? What's the answer to that one? Save life. On the Sabbath, as on every day, God wants us to understand the nature of his gift to us and respond accordingly. The Sabbath was always a gift. It was always a gift of freedom and a gift of life, which was intended to do good to us and not to do harm to us. Thus, we honor the Sabbath by receiving God's good gift with thanksgiving and then by treating other people the way God has treated us, doing good to others, not evil, saving life, not destroying it. The Pharisees have distorted God's law to make it something that it never was intended to be. And in fact, it's almost the opposite of what it was intended to be. They took something that was a gift to bless life and they've used it as a club to beat people down with. But what Jesus is saying is that here in the Sabbath, as everywhere in the Bible, we find that God is biased towards life. He's biased towards life. And God's law teaches people be biased towards life. And disciples of Jesus should be biased towards life. What does that mean? If we're in a situation and we don't know what to do, but there's one choice that honors the dignity of human life and helps vulnerable human beings to thrive and flourish, we should do that one. So we promote life everywhere we can. That's why everywhere Christians have gone throughout the ages, they've done stuff like start... Uh, hospitals and start schools and um, start houses of hospitality to care for the poor. And they thought, where is the vulnerable life around us and how can we nurture that vulnerable life in the same way that God has done for us? What helped me think about this a number of years ago was a really radical little book by a controversial Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann. I don't endorse everything that he says, but some of us need to read this book, y'all. It's called Sabbath as Resistance. If you want to read it, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll meet with you and talk about the book when you're done. But in this book, Walter Brueggemann talks about something that I want us to think about today. Imagine how radical of a gift the Sabbath was for people who had just been set free from Pharaoh. Okay, you're a slave. Your mommy and daddy were slaves. Your grandmothers and your grandfathers were slaves. Your great grandmothers and your great grandfathers were slaves. They had a harsh master called Pharaoh and Pharaoh called himself a god. He claimed absolute control. And Pharaoh was a person who demanded constant productivity. No days off. They were crushed by a massive 
anxiety-inducing weight of work. More bricks or I will whip you. More bricks or I will starve you. And if you go ask for some time off to worship the Lord, then what Pharaoh says is double the bricks. Now you've got to get your own straw. He's a harsh taskmaster. He lays on them heavy burdens all the time. And now the Lord God of Israel shows up. He sends his servant Moses, who says, thus says the Lord, let my people go. God flexes his power through plagues. The people get set free. They're out now and God's teaching them to live as his free people. And one of the first things that he says is this. Pharaoh's not God. You shall have no other God before me. I am the Lord, your God. And as your new master, here's one of the first rules that I want to give you every week. Take a whole day and just rest. Do nothing. It's a time to worship me. It's a time to enjoy my good gifts of creation. It's a time to relax and it's a time not to fret. You don't have to worry about taking care of your family or keeping everybody safe or being more productive. I will take care of you because I'm a loving father. I don't need you to provide for me. I'm going to provide for you. Can you imagine what that felt like? And then if this God said, as a matter of fact, let me tell you a story about how I made the world. I worked hard to create things and then I rested. And on the seventh day, you're going to remember my holy rest. And you're going to enter into my holy rest. Listen to what Walter Brueggemann wrote about this. He said, God is not a workaholic. Isn't that good news, church family? God is not a pharaoh. God does not keep jacking up production schedules. To the contrary, God rests confident, serene, at peace. He's talking about Genesis 2, when the Lord rests. God's rest, moreover, bestows on creatureliness a restfulness that contradicts the drivenness of the system of Pharaoh. Wow. That's something we need to hear today because we may not be enslaved by Pharaoh, but this is America and a lot of us have a Pharaoh living in our own head, don't we? More work, more productivity. Anybody get stressed out if you're not doing anything productive for a few hours? More work, more productivity. You got to do more to earn your space on this planet. You got to perform a little harder in order to convince yourself that you're valuable. Guess what, church family? That's not the voice of your loving father. That's not the voice of your gracious father. And the Sabbath is God saying, I'm the resting God. And I want you to share in my rest. This isn't to say that work is bad. Creative work is awesome. Do it six days a week, God tells his children. But he says, I'm the resting God. So it shouldn't be surprising that when Jesus comes to the earth, we find in Matthew eleven twenty eight Jesus saying, Come to me, all who are heavy and laden, or, or, excuse me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. That's the meaning of the Sabbath. That's what it was all about. It was always a gift of life. And when God told the people to keep the Sabbath, he explicitly said, you treat other people the way that I am treating you. You love your neighbors. You love the, the sojourners in your land, e- even the land itself and the animals give everybody rest because nobody here has to be productive all the time in order to um, earn their place to live and to survive. 
in this covenant community. This is a community founded on God's abundant grace, generosity, and steadfast love. So everybody say, relax, just rest. That's what the Sabbath was all about. That's already good news. Aren't you glad that our God is the God of rest? But the most remarkable thing by far that Jesus says in this passage is not just when he's explaining what the Sabbath was all about. It's then when he goes on to reveal his glory in a new way. And the remarkable statement is verse five. Look with me at verse five. It says this. And he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. This is a powerful statement. Jesus has shown the Pharisees that they are misinterpreting the original intention of the Mosaic law. But now he's saying something much deeper about his identity. First, let's talk about those three words, son of man. Everybody say son of man. That phrase is used a lot in the Old Testament and we talked about it a few weeks ago. So I just want to briefly repeat right now that when Jesus calls himself the son of man, and he's talking about himself when he says this, when he calls himself the son of man, he is claiming to be the fulfillment of a prophecy from the book of Daniel. If you want to flip, if you got your Bible, you want to flip to it, you can go to Daniel chapter seven. If not, you can just listen. I'll read it to you. In Daniel chapter seven, we read this in verses 13 through 14. The prophet says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. That's the phrase. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. By referring to himself as the son of man, Jesus is saying, I am the one that was talked about right here who comes among you as a human being, and yet I come having received authority. I come with divine authority to establish a kingdom, which is not just for Israel, but it's for all nations. And it's not just for a little while, but it's for all time. I have come with absolute authority to establish my rule. So everybody say, Jesus is the king. But he doesn't stop there. He says, the son of man, the king, is Lord of the Sabbath. That's a bold statement. Here's the thing about that. God made the Sabbath. So only God gets to make the rules about the Sabbath. And only God has ultimate authority to tell us what the Sabbath means and how to practice the Sabbath. It was God who inspired Moses to write the Sabbath regulations that were part of the old covenant. So even Moses can't call himself Lord of the Sabbath. He was just the messenger. David can't call himself Lord of the Sabbath. He was like Moses under the authority of the word of God. The point here is nobody but God can claim to rule over the Sabbath, which is to say Jesus is claiming to be and to do what only God can be and do. Jesus has authority far greater than Moses to tell us how to live as the people of God's new covenant. And that's very good news because Jesus came in love 
to give us abundant life. Before we say anything else, church, I think as the people of Jesus, we need to be in the habit of trembling before his authority. Are you looking forward to the day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord? Listen, that's going to be the triumph of God, of all God's grace, healing the world. That's the day we're longing for. But we're not going to be in a casual posture saying, Jesus is my homeboy. We're going to be on our knees saying, Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. He's king. He has authority over any other human being because he's God in human flesh. But we could say more. Not only is Jesus saying that he has authority that only God possesses. Really, what Jesus is revealing in our text is this. Jesus is the resting God who has come to give us rest. Jesus is the resting God who rested after all his works of creation. And he has come near to us in grace and mercy to do what? Here it is again, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. How is Jesus the resting God? Well, he rested after finishing all of his works of creation. Jesus is the eternal son. He's been with his father. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. Meaning when the scripture says God rested on the third day, it means God, the father, son and Holy Spirit. Jesus was there resting. He is the resting God. But Jesus is also the resting God in the sense that he has finished the work of redemption. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? After he died on the cross for our sins, as he was dying, he said those three words. It is finished. He did all the work that was necessary for your salvation and mine. How does he give us this rest? He's the resting God who came to invite us into his rest. How does he give it to us? What does he do? Well, Jesus came to fulfill the law that we could not fulfill. Who here has kept all the commandments? Who feels like you've broken one or two maybe this week? Okay, lots of hands going up. That's probably all of us, church family. We've all broken God's commandments. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus did the work that none of us could do by totally fulfilling. This is God coming to fulfill God's law. And then he went to the cross for us. And on the cross, he took upon himself our sin and all of its consequences. We broke the law. He took upon himself the punishment, the consequence for breaking the law. He died. He exhausted All of the consequences of evil. So when Jesus said it is finished, he's saying there's no more punishment left for our sins. Isn't that an amazing thought, church family? There's no more consequences left for our sin. He's absorbed it all. And then on the third day, he rose from the grave victorious so that he says anybody who trusts in him can receive forgiveness of our sins and can enter into his resurrection life. Now, church family, when I said we're going to think about God's rest, that doesn't mean you can't say amen when we talk about the gospel here. Y'all out there, church? Did you hear what we what we're talking about right now? Jesus 
took on the cross all of the consequences for all of your sin and then rose victoriously from the grave so you could rise with him. That's what we're talking. Okay, thank the Lord. We're here. He did this and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sent the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit doing inside of us? He's teaching us to cry, Abba, Father. Here's another way to say that. He's teaching us to rest in God's love. A lot of us waste a lot of energy like the Pharisees trying to work hard to get God to love you. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, relax. God already loves you. And the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you is to say, your Abba Father already loves you. He already loves you. Rest in his love. And he's returning in glory. When he returns in glory, he's perfecting all of his creation so that all of our striving now comes to an end and we enter into his eternal rest. Anybody want to see Jesus face to face and hear him say, well done, faithful servant. Come rest. Come rest. Hebrews 4 teaches that we enter into that rest by trusting Jesus. I don't have time to go into it, but you can go study it this week. We enter into that rest just simply by trusting Jesus Christ. And it's true that Jesus invites us to join him in doing good works that give life to others. But such an important Part of Christian discipleship is learning that all of our good work always comes from a spiritual place of rest. Rest in God's grace, rest in his love. We don't have to try to do good so God will accept us. He's already accepted us by grace. From that place of resting in his grace, from that place of security and joy, rest and freedom, The abundance of God's life can flow out of us to bring blessing to others. But if if we're always striving and don't know how to rest, we're never going to be a blessing. Another radical, wild teacher who says and does some crazy things, but who also says some wise things we should listen to is the reformer Martin Luther. And he wrote a book called The Freedom of the Christian that if you struggle with what I'm talking about, I encourage you to go read that book. But let me summarize it for you. Here's part of what he's saying. You can never earn God's grace or his love. He gives it to you as a free gift. All you got to do is believe. Just believe. Just rest in his love. And then part of what he does is a brilliant analysis of the psychology of Christian spirituality when he says this. If you don't believe that you're already accepted by radical grace, which is received by faith alone, then all of your good works are really going to be an attempt to manipulate God to accept you. Which means when you're trying to love other people, you're not really loving them. You're trying to do something to get God to accept you. Anybody ever been there? You're trying to do good for God so God will be happy with you. And you're trying to do good by helping other people. And the other people aren't cooperating. So then you get mad at those people you're trying to help. Does that maybe be an indication that there's something off here? And he's saying because we're free from striving to earn God's acceptance. Now we're free to really face the real question of love is just what would be a blessing to my neighbor? From a place of freedom, from a place of the abundance of God's grace in our lives. Not only does Jesus talk big, claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath, but he has the power to back it up. I'm almost done, but look at verse 10. After Jesus says some radical words, he looks around at them all and he said to the man with the withered hand, 
Stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. He's not just using words. Jesus is showing his power. He's the son of God. Infinite in power. And he comes to use his power to do good, not to do harm. He comes to use his power to restore life, not to destroy life. Now, as I was thinking about this text all week and praying about Jesus, what do you want to say to us as a body? There's lots of practical applications I could think of. We could think of these for a little bit. Would it be good for us to be a people who are about doing good in our neighborhood? Should we be busy trying to preserve the lives of our neighbors like Jesus does? Spiritual life, evangelism, caring for people's bodies, their souls, their communities. Yes, yes, we should do all that. But actually, I don't want to say all that except for I just said it. Here's how I really want to end, church family. I think here's what this text is really about. I just want to invite you to enjoy the good news that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. I just want to invite you to fix your eyes on Jesus and think, this is the resting God who has come to me in grace to invite me into his rest. We could have a little confession moment. Anybody sometimes feel a little weary, heavy laden? Life beats you down a little bit? The good news of Jesus today is come and rest. I want to invite you to stand. Worship team is about to come up and they can come up now actually and They're going to lead us in a song. We're going to respond to God's word through singing. But as they're coming, I want to just invite you where you are to close your eyes. Sometimes it takes a little moment for us to soak up what God has said to us. So we're ready to respond from the heart. But where you are, I invite you just to close your eyes. And if you can, just picture the face of Jesus. Picture him as he's about to heal that man with the wounded hand. As you're imagining his face, just meditate on this truth. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the resting God who has come with grace to give you rest. This man with his calloused hands and his dirty feet is God coming to give you life, not to destroy your life. He's coming to give you forgiveness, not judgment. He's coming to do you good and to bless you, not to harm you. He's Lord of the Sabbath, the resting God, who comes to give you a free rest which you can never earn. And really, the word of the gospel to you today is just relax. Relax. You don't have to try to manipulate God into loving you. He already does. Just look at Jesus and surrender to his love. I'm going to invite you just to be quiet in his presence right now. In your heart, you can say anything to God that's on your heart. Then I'm going to pray for you before we see. Father, we come to you now so thankful for your grace. 
For there's probably a little or a lot of Pharisee in each of our hearts. I know for me, very often it's easier for me to trust your holiness than to believe that you profoundly and unconditionally love me. And I think that's probably a struggle for a lot of us. And so I just pray, even right now as we sing, that your spirit would just be breaking chains, overcoming lies of the enemy, and giving us grace to rest in the gift of life that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, if there's any sin that we're holding on to that's hindering us from coming with open hands and surrendering to your love, I pray that even now we would let go of those things. Make us a people who know how to rest in your grace so that from that place of abundance, there would be an overflowing generosity and love towards others. For all this, we give you the glory. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.